0: This is episode 11 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at AngryTechNews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. From the security through lack of security department, Kraken Security Labs put up an excellent blog post to remind us yet again that while fingerprint login may be a very convenient low security authentication method, it is not a secure replacement for a strong password or even a four digit PIN or maybe a two digit PIN. The post showed how to fake a fingerprint scanner using nothing more than a laser printer, a bit of Elmer's glue, and an off-axis photo of a laptop screen that the target had touched. They claim their attack worked on a, quote, majority of devices that the team had available for testing, although they don't mention which devices. If you'd like to see how laughably easy this method is, or if you just need to get past somebody's poorly secured device, the article will be in the show notes at AngryTechNews.com from the where is your digital god now department when non-fungible tokens or nfts really started to hit the global consciousness maybe six months ago i and many others couldn't help but point and laugh at the concept the idea was sold as a way to take digital goods which by their nature are easily copied and attach a tag of ownership to it The producer of the good can issue and sell the tag stored on the Ethereum blockchain to a limited number of people. The nature of cryptocurrency makes sure that that tag is never duplicated. But only the tag is stored on the blockchain, not the image itself. The image is usually hosted elsewhere with its URL stored in the NFT. Do you know what they call an image file without a cryptographically secure tag that establishes its prominence? It's called an image file. The laughable part about NFTs, some of which have been sold for millions of dollars, is that every single one of them, by nature of being able to view them, can simply be saved without the tag, usually using your browser's right-click menu. And most people who want an image don't care about the tag, they care about the image. The tag is just extra data. The real value add of building NFTs into the blockchain is that it provides an enumeration of every piece of digital art that someone tried to simultaneously make public and also force into a state of artificial pseudo scarcity so that they could set the price as if it weren't infinitely copyable. The blockchain also contains a convenient list of every person dumb enough to pay money for one of these, and somebody has now taken advantage of that enumeration. Australian artist and programmer Jeffrey Huntley has written a script that scoured the Ethereum blockchain for NFT links, downloaded and archived all 15 terabytes of them, and put them up on a website, the nftbay.org, which mimics torrent index site The Pirate Bay. The site does a good job of pointing out the ridiculousness of NFTs. People are dropping millions on instructions on how to download images. That's why you can right click and save as, because the NFT is just instructions they're standard images according to the site Huntley told Motherboard that he considers the site to be an art project which exists as a social commentary on the tulip mania of our time or to use a more modern reference the beanie babies of our time it is unknown whether Huntley intends to tell, sell that art project as an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain <laughs> From the Selling Out Your Users and Your Soul department, up to 3 million UK citizens who were coerced by their government into getting nose-raped over the last 16 months in order to prove that they don't have the common cold now have something else to worry about. Signpost Diagnostics, a government-approved supplier of COVID PCR testing, has kept up to 3 million DNA-laden nasal swabs used in their tests and is allegedly planning to sell that treasure trove of DNA to data miners. The purported reason for selling the data is, quote, to learn more about human health and to develop new drugs and products. The unstated reason, of course, is because that data is worth a shit ton of money. The firm is now being investigated by the UK's data privacy watchdog, which, as far as I can tell, is actually the name of a government office and not just its job description. At least every source I could find talking about the office Literally just called them the data privacy watchdog. Maybe it's an actual dog. I'm not sure. Anyway, the investigators alleged that customers who booked PCR tests through Signpost's testing website, ExpressTest.co.uk and customers at their 71 walk-in locations were not told explicitly that their COVID testing swabs would be used for anything other than, well, COVID testing. They were, however, required to check, I agree, to a nearly 5,000-word privacy policy that I think it's safe to assume none of them ever read. What the statistically zero number of people who read said policy would have learned is that the company reserves the right to retain data including biological samples and the DNA obtained from such samples, as well as genetic information derived from processing your DNA sample using various technologies such as genotyping and whole or partial genome sequencing. They're selling you whole cloth. The policy also grants signposts the right to share all of this and any other personal information with collaborators, which is a little ominous name, but includes universities, private companies and government, which is everybody, and that it, quote, may receive compensation in return. UK law requires that any analysis of sensitive medical information can only be carried out with explicit informed consent. Signpost may soon find themselves in the all too common among greedy corporate data vendors position of trying to prove to a court that a long generic click wrap wall of text somehow constitutes explicit informed consent. From the Leave Bobby Alone Department, an employee group at Activision Blizzard has signed and published a petition with over a thousand signatories requesting that CEO Bobby Kotick be removed from the company. We, the undersigned, no longer have confidence in the leadership of Bobby Kotick as the CEO of Activision Blizzard. The information that has come to light about his behaviors and practices in the running of our companies runs counter to the culture and integrity that we require of our leadership and directly conflicts with the initiatives started by our peers. We ask that Bobby Kotick himself remove himself as CEO of Activision Blizzard and that shareholders be allowed to select the new CEO without the input of Bobby, who we are aware owns a substantial portion of the voting rights of the shareholders. The petition then goes on to list the names, titles, and departments of all 1,000-plus signatories, presumably to make it easy for HR to fill out their next list of layoffs. This follows on the heel of a Change.org petition demanding that Kotick resign, which is signed by more than 2,600 IP addresses, Although it being changed.org, if you think that means 2600 actual real humans signed it, then I've got a botnet to sell you. I haven't been following this story, so it kind of took me by surprise to hear such vehemence about it. The petition suspiciously doesn't say what he's being accused of, nor does the Verge article that I plucked the story from. I wondered what the guy was actually being accused of. Depending on who you ask, he's either Harvey Weinstein incarnate or he's simply a guy standing up to a woke cancel culture that has infested Activision's corporate halls. I think it might be a little of both, but while scanning headlines to see if I could tell which one it was, I was brought up short when I realized that I don't care and it really doesn't matter. You see, up until about 10 years ago, when people were dissatisfied with their corporate leadership, they took action. If a large enough group were dissatisfied, they'd strike or work slow down or you know, do something. If an individual didn't like the company's direction, he or she would quit. Maybe conduct a little bit of industrial sabotage on the way out. But in today's age, I guess dissatisfied employees can only write and sign petitions. What the hell is that going to accomplish? Oh, please, Mr. Kotick, can you please voluntarily relinquish your cushy position in charge? Oh, and while you're at it, please don't just vote yourself right back in using your majority shares in the company. Okay, thanks, bye. To put it in terms that Blizzard people will understand, it's like getting together a 30-man horde, storming up to the Alliance guy you want to gank, and then politely asking him to flag for PvP so that you can beat his ass and take turns teabagging his corpse. Okay, so what's plan B then? What do you do if he just says no? Now go away or I shall taunt you a second time! From the We All Want to Be Rockstar department. AAA video games are a fast moving business. Big studios put multiple years of development into making a game, and if they're lucky, they get 6 to 12 months of solid sales out of it before gamers move on to the next new thing. A good game may hold players' attention for 2 or 3 years before they move on. From a purely financial perspective, it doesn't make sense for a studio to continue working on a game past the point when most of the players are no longer playing. What's the point of fixing bugs and maintaining servers when it won't bring in any new players? To put in publisher terms, the return on investment through new sales is extremely low. So the final patch goes out for a game and the development team moves on or disbands. There's always a few players still playing, but not enough for the studio to care about. If the game requires servers, those are kept online for a while longer, but eventually they're not worth the IT costs and they too are shut off. This, by the way, is an argument against centralized servers, at least if you care about your most rabid players. Case in point, I was cleaning up my Steam library the other day and came across an old Obsidian game called Dungeon Siege 3 from 2011 that was still playable. It was Steam. Steam's pretty good about that. And The multiplayer mode on that game was, in fact, still enabled. I was able to play with another player over the Steam matchmaking service. The reason I was able to do that is because the game, like many older games, used peer-to-peer multiplayer in which all you really need is multiple people running the, the game. What you don't need is an online dedicated server which this game from 2011, there's no way that that server would still be running. As a matter of fact, when I was on, I went ahead and clicked the show me all games globally which are on. In every time that I've played that in the last several months, there has never been another person online that wasn't me or one of my friends. So the game becomes Abandonware. The original publisher still owns the copyright, but no longer wants to think about it. Nobody cares, but a handful of diehard players... And even they will eventually get bored and go buy another game. But for the very best games, that small group of players never really goes away. Not until you force them anyway. The players stick around. They build active communities around a game. They build and swap mods to keep replayability high. The best companies encourage this modding by releasing their dev tools to the public. They maintain private servers when the official servers go down. They support new users when the company can't be bothered and they develop bug fixes and compatibility patches that the disbanded official dev team long ago decided were not worth fixing. At this point, by common law, the game is owned by its community, its players. They're the ones who care about it, they're the ones who are maintaining it, they're the ones who are keeping it alive. Copyright law, of course, says differently. Normally, that's not a big problem with games, since a company that doesn't care enough to pay a lowly maintenance programmer to fix a bug sure as hell won't pay a high-priced corporate lawyer to go after a few modders. But every once in a while, a company runs out of ideas for new games. Instead, they dig through their vault of old hits looking for something they abandoned years ago, but that people might just still like to dust off and re-release with a fresh UI skin, a couple of token new features, and a whole load of new bugs. One such game is Grand Theft Auto 3, which, despite having been released more than 20 years ago in October of 2001, still has an active fan base and modding community. One of the more popular mods is called RE3, and it's companion mod REVC for GTA Vice City on the same engine, which is an unofficial patch for GTA 3 with dozens of bug fixes, quality of life features, performance improvements, and other things that make the game more fun and replayable. In February, Take-Two Interactive and Rockstar Games, the current copyright holders for the 20-year-old game, issued a DMCA takedown notice to GitHub. The team filed a DMCA counter-notice with GitHub, where the open-source mods are hosted, and who, unlike some censorship-happy copyright fetishist platforms, actually respects the counter-notice system, the mod is still up at the moment. The next official step in the DMCA dance is for the lawsuits to come out. Take-Two filed theirs in September, alleging that the aim of the RE3 and REVC projects was to create and distribute pirated versions of the games, and demanding that the court find the creators willfully and maliciously copied, adapted and distributed their content without permission, and demanded that the court award damages for each copy of the mod downloaded. The mod authors lawyered up and issued their response brief this week, according to Torrent Freak. Their first argument is that their use of the GTA 3 code was fair use, and that if any copying of material did occur, it was undertaken solely to allow interoperability and bug fixing in the original titles. I personally find this argument compelling, but United States case law is not on their side. They also point out that both games are over 15 years old and all but abandoned by the original developers. Again, very compelling under common law. But irrelevant under copyright law, under which a copyright lasts approximately until the heat death of the universe plus 70 years. As a side note, none of this would be a problem if software copyrights were limited to a more reasonable 5 or 10 year limit, which encompasses the average useful lifespan of any piece of software and still allows plenty of time in which to recoup development costs. I digress. The most compelling fair use factor in the defendant's case is the impact of mods on the potential market. On that point, the plaintiffs have the near impossible task of trying to prove that these mods somehow harm the market for their 2001 software release. In fact, insomuch that it is even possible to find the game available for purchase anywhere in 2021, it is much easier to argue that the existence of the mods has exponentially increased the number of units sold in the last decade. To be clear, companies like Take-Two often trot out the specter of piracy, It's a tired refrain. Lawyers for big copyright are extremely quick to draw dotted lines between whatever consumer behavior vexes their clients and those darn dirty copyright infringers. The reason for this is not hard to understand. Copyright is by far and above the largest hammer in their toolbox, and every unofficial game mod or patch has to be treated like a nail. But I can tell you from personal experience, games modding communities tend to be pretty far from pirating communities. I've never been involved in GTA modding, but I have and continue to be an active member of the modding communities for several other games. In general, modders are against piracy for several good reasons. The first and foremost is that modders truly love the games that they're modding and by extension, the studio that developed it. Piracy, especially when a game is actively being sold, hurts the studio. But another more practical reason is that modding isn't always officially sanctioned and kind of lives in a gray area. Modding communities and forums op- operate on the goodwill of the development studio, and even a whiff of piracy is enough to get a site or whole forum shut down. So modders, in my experience, keep themselves well separate from the pirates. Most will not support a pirated version of the game, to the extent they can tell, and if somebody comes around to the, the modder forum asking about pirated copies, they're more likely to find themselves banned from the forum than get the help that they're asking for. Another compelling argument is that the Take-Two lawsuit is applying United States copyright law, but the plaintiffs are not in the U.S. I believe they are in Germany and New Zealand. And they are also not U.S. citizens and indeed should not be held to U.S. law at all. The United States Copyright Act should not be applied outside the United States and its territories. To the extent plaintiff seeks to extend the application of the United States Copyright Act to cover activities outside the United States, its claims should be barred, reads the defending brief. Again, I don't think this argument's going to go very far. The U S government hardly seems concerned with such notions as sovereignty and jurisdiction when it comes to doing corporate bidding and all you international listeners, please don't blame the American people for that. We don't have any more control over the corrupt bloated corporate controlled monster in Washington, DC than you do. The 2020 election is evidence of that. So why you may ask have take two and rockstar suddenly decided to attack their own modding community. Well, I'd bet it has something to do with their recent release of Grand Theft Auto the Trilogy, which is a re-release of GTA 3 and GTA Vice City and GTA San Andreas, with a couple new token features and a whole load of new bugs. As of this writing, the trilogy has an average Metacritic user score of 0.5 out of 10. I want to send a big holiday week thanks to Sir Spud the Mighty. Francis McCandless, Loretta Vandenberg, Adrian Drankon, and Curtis Peterson for producing Angry Tech News. Angry Tech News is released on the value-for-value value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to AngryTechNews.com and click on the Donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think this show has been worth to you be it $5, $50, or $500. And even if it's not the right time to donate, that's okay. Maybe you donated last week. Maybe you blew all your cash on a huge Thanksgiving dinner that you didn't invite me to. Instead, tell a friend about Angry Tech News. Or tell an enemy. Or just tell somebody on the street. I don't judge. That's it for me. My name is Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News. With the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.